0: Well, we are in John chapter 18 this morning, and uh, I want to reread one of the verses that will be the verse that we have our text from. That's verse number 38. So if you'll find John chapter 18, we'll look at verse 38 together. We'll have a prayer, and then we'll uh, look into the word of God here today. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all, Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the great privilege that's ours to enjoy another beautiful day. And we realize, Lord, whether we have cold or blustery or rainy, windy, whatever it is that we have, or sunshine and mild temperatures like we're expecting here today, we realize every, every day is a gift from you. Every day you give us the opportunity to enjoy life once again. And so teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts to wisdom and help us to redeem the time, knowing that the days are evil. Help us to appreciate every good and perfect gift which you give to us in each day and to be grateful for all the things that come from your hand. Thank you for the theme that we had in Sunday school this morning about your blessings. And we realize, Lord, uh, that we are the recipients of so many blessings that we take for granted, so many that we uh, often fail to give you thanks and praise for. And so uh, p- please instill and read in our hearts this morning a thankful spirit. May we be grateful to you for all you've done for us in spite of whatever trials we may have. We thank you that you're always with us. And uh, we pray, Father, now as we come to this time of worshiping you through your word and the preaching of your word and listening out for what you have for us that we might open our hearts to it and and be stronger Christians, greater conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, would you just undertake for me, I pray that you'll help me to bring God's word in a helpful, clear, practical manner this morning, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And then, Lord, I pray for every listener, Lord. You, you know exactly who we are, where we are, and what's on our mind this morning and what we need. And so we'll trust you, Lord, to take the message and use it in some way in every heart and life, particularly, Lord, if we have anybody not knowing Jesus Christ as personal Savior. We always want to pray that the gospel will be found clear and winsome and plain and that you'll draw men and women and boys and girls to yourself through its saving power and we pray these things now in Jesus holy and wonderful name amen well we are skipping from the 14th chapter of John where we were last week in our series they asked him this looking at these questions that people asked Jesus we really are on the home stretch of this because we have one in John chapter 18 today so we're we're moving clear over the upper room discourse which starts in chapter 13 And we had a message in chapter 14 last week, and we're moving over to John chapter 18 where we have a a different scene entirely as uh, Jesus has now been betrayed and Jesus goes on trial uh, before Pilate. We have another message in John 19 uh, that we will be getting to Anon, and then we have, I believe, one in John 21 and one in Acts, and then this series will be completed. So a few more, but we're we really are on the home stretch of this now. This one this morning is kind of in a class by itself, thinking about the different categories of people who asked questions of Jesus. Um, we talked about the disciples. We talked about that kind of being the largest category of, or, or quantity of questions that we have, the disciples asking Jesus questions. We, we've talked about Jesus' opponents. I'm not sure whether you put Pilate in that class or not. In one sense, I could see where you might. But in another sense, Pilate is not really a part of the Jewish establishment, so to speak, that we're typically thinking of when we we think of the people that Jesus clashed with all the time. Uh, Pilate is a a Roman governor, a procurator, to be specific. And so his role is simply to dispense justice, and uh, he's in that position and put there, ordained by God. We'll talk about that more uh, next week. So I don't know whether maybe we class Pilate as just in that third category of people from all walks of life, but one thing is certain, Pilate certainly had one of the most unique opportunities that's ever been given to any human being, to be in the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, to interview him, as it were, and to have the opportunity to inquire about truth of the one who is truth incarnate, to pose that question to Jesus, what is truth? And that really is a question, I don't know if you've ever heard a message on this before, but that that really is a question that has reverberated down through time. It has all kinds of implications behind it, because you'll notice that Pilate doesn't use the definite article. Pilate doesn't say, what is the truth? You do have Jesus talking about the truth. Up a little bit further, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. We have that in verse 36. But then in verse 37, Jesus answered, Thou sayest, I am a king. To this end was I born. And for this cause came I into the world that I might bear witness unto, notice, the truth. The truth. Everyone that is of the truth, Jesus says, heareth my voice. But Pilate doesn't ask that question. Pilate asks a different question. He asks, What is truth? So it becomes a little philosophical, but there are more overtones to it than that. And that's why I say because it seems like mankind is on an endless search for truth. And man always has questions about what is the nature of truth. And we have attitudes and thinking about what is truth. And we're going to explore some of that today. But I hope we don't lose context to the fact that really the broader scene that's before us in a practical sense is here's a man who has an opportunity In his encounter with Jesus Christ. You remember, it was said of Herod that Herod had wanted to see Jesus. You remember that? Wanted to see if perhaps he could see some miracle done by Jesus. Well, Pilate has an even greater opportunity than that. Pilate has the opportunity for a personal interview, private exchange with the Lord Jesus Christ. What's he going to do with this? And in the broader sense the question arises what do you and I do when God gives us the great privilege of an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ? We can ask that when God brings us into the into contact with the truth about Christ and the truth about the gospel for the very first time, what are we going to do with that truth? What are we going to do with the claims of Christ that he is the son of God and the savior of men and that by putting our faith and trust in him as our personal savior, we can be redeemed and have eternal life. What are we going to do with that? But as believers, we have encounters with Christ, I hope, often, frequently. I hope as we read his word, we have an encounter with Christ because it's in the word of God we find him revealed. I hope when we come to church, we have an encounter with Christ. I hope we find his voice speaking to us just as it was speaking to Pilate. What are we going to do with those encounters and it's very interesting to observe what Pilate did with his because I would sort of say to you this morning that we want to be sure that our encounter with Christ does not end like Pilate's did, that we do not come out in the same place that Pilate did. So it's, a, it's important, very important, that we come away with a different answer than what Pilate came away with. And so we're going to look at this question this morning going to divide this into two parts. Going to try to handle it this way. We're going to actually go down through the whole story. We're first of all going to look at the earlier stages of the interview. I'll call it an interview, but it's uh, not so much like a job interview as much as it's an interview in a legal proceeding, right? Because this is actually a trial. The Jews have delivered Jesus over to Pilate accused him of certain things. And this is a trial, So, but it is an interview because Pilate has to get to the bottom of whether or not there's any validity to these charges. So we want to look at the earlier stages of this. There's going to be an exchange. There's going to be a, any number of questions, I believe four really, that Pilate asks of Jesus and Jesus is going to respond to those things. It's going to be kind of interesting to see how this develops and how it sets the stage for the climax or culmination of the interview, which we have in verse 38, where our final question from Pilate is, which I would suggest to you is both a question and an answer. And we'll look at that when we get there in just a bit. First of all, let's look at the earlier stages of the interview and see what's going on in here. Um, Earlier in our context, we read this, Um, In verse number 29, Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? Do you ever stop to think about that? What precisely, when they brought Jesus to Pilate, what were they hoping to accomplish? And so what charges did they bring? Well, you sort of know, I think, the answer to the question, what were they hoping to accomplish? They wanted Pilate to condemn him to death. And so you would need charges that would be sufficient to get Pilate to do that. What kind of charges would you come up with if you were looking to do that? Well, I'm not asking you to turn, but they came up with three. John doesn't give us this particular detail here. Luke is the one who tells us this. If you turn to Luke chapter 23 and verse number two, you'll find that they brought three accusations against Jesus. They accused him, first of all, of being a subversive. They presented him as one who is subverting the nation. So subversion would certainly be a charge that could get you into big trouble with the Roman government. They also presented him as one who was forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. It might not be a capital offense, but depending on exactly how you dealt with that, that was probably also quite a serious charge. The third thing they accused him of, and this is what really comes into play in our text before us now, was that Jesus also presented himself as a king. And that really is the charge that's the one that Pilate is interested in in this interview that he has with Jesus. So Pilate's first question, if we look at this in the earliest stages of the interview, comes in verse number 38. The Jews obviously tell him some things, but we don't have them all recorded here. We know now what those charges were. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall. So he's, he's heard what the Jews have to say. So he enters into the judgment hall, and he calls Jesus. And the interview begins with this question, Art thou the king of the Jews? Pilate's pursuing that. He's, he's, he's leaving aside the subversion issue, which might be connected to the idea of calling yourself a king. He's leaving aside the accusation about not paying tribute to Caesar. You know That was a tax question. We, we actually had a message on that, whether or not Jesus did not do that. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that be Caesar's and to God the things that be God's. So obviously these charges were constructed by the Jews to get a certain verdict. We've seen some of that lately, haven't we? Charges that are constructed in such a way to sort of abuse the legal system, but because you have a certain verdict or goal, that you want to come out of it. That's exactly what the Jews are doing. And as this goes on, it's going to become obvious that, that Pilate knows this. But his first question he has to deal with this issue. He's a Roman procurator. Rome did not brook rival kings to Caesar. And so he pursues this question. He asks them, Art thou the king of the Jews? Now, this seems pretty straightforward. You answer yes or no, but the answer is a bit more complex, as I think you realize, than maybe what Pilate is thinking, because Pilate is going to be thinking in political terms, right? Pilate's not thinking in spiritual terms. Pilate doesn't know anything about Jesus insofar as what you and I think about when we know. It's not as if Pilate was listening to Jesus and following Jesus like people listen to Billy Graham or something like that. Pilate really didn't know anything about Jesus except as now it comes before his attention. He's got to deal with these persnickety old Jews once again, and he wants to know whether or not this is really true. Well, here's something that's kind of interesting because sensing the mood, sensing the attitude of Pilate as you go through this, any, any clue that we can get into that, really helps us to understand what Pilate was thinking and where he eventually came out when he asked that question, what is truth? So here's something that probably without a commentary or something of that, we wouldn't have any real way unless an English translation seeks to bring it out. But the you or the thou, as we have it before us in verse number 33, art thou the king of the Jews?" stands an emphasis in that verse. It has a, in the way the grammar is constructed, it has an emphasis upon it. And in this sense, it may very well be that what's meant by that emphasis in Pilate's question is a note of sarcasm. You think about the arrogance and the pride of, of the Romans. Now you think about Jesus standing before Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Really? Really? Why might he have that kind of a sarcastic attitude? Well, it's not exactly as if Jesus was apprehended in military garb. It's not as if Jesus had a reputation as a warrior. It's not as if Jesus had his followers outside rioting and causing problems for the Roman government. Jesus doesn't give any appearance of someone who is, as we read about in John chapter 6, when they tried to come by force and make him a king. He doesn't give any appearance of anything like that. If anything, we know that Jesus was poor. Am I right about that? Yes, Jesus was poor. Now, I don't think that meant that, that he went around in tatters necessarily because I think that the people who surrounded Jesus, God used them to meet his needs and to take good care of him. But, but he certainly wouldn't have been an elegantly, richly clad person. He, he might have even looked to Jesus. He might have even looked to Pilate, uh, especially when you view Pilate on this high lofty perch that that he viewed himself on. He might have even viewed Jesus as something of a Jewish peasant. And so you can begin to see how he asks this question, are you the king of the Jews? Really, if they're going to muster some kind of a revolt against Caesar and declare a Jewish king, you're the best they have? And I don't really know that it's so much a personal snide against Jesus as much as it just reflects Pilate's pride and his, and his realization that the Jews are full of baloney and that a lot of this is just trumped up. And if really, if you're going to bring someone before me and accuse him of, of trying to be a king and subverting the nation, I would have kind of expected a little different image, a little different person standing before me. Well, so much for that. There may be some sarcasm intended in this statement, but Jesus answers the question. And so look in verse number 34, Jesus answered, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Well, I think the way we have to look at this is this is an invitation. Because what Pilate is really asking, or what Jesus is really asking Pilate Are we just dealing with this as a legal issue? I'm just here because I'm condemned of something, and you want to find out what you need to know in order to declare a verdict, guilty or not guilty. Or do you have any further interest in this? Is there any interest on a different level? Sayest thou this thing of thyself? In other words... Do you have any personal interest in this matter, or is this just strictly a court matter? I'm just another person on your docket here for the day. In any way you look at this, it's an invitation to Pilate, because if Pilate has any inclination, whatever, if he's heard anything about Jesus, as Herod had, knows anything at all, it was an opportunity for him. It's a private interview. He's gone back into the judgment hall to talk to Jesus, How many people, I ask you this again, how many people get that opportunity to talk to Jesus one-on-one like that? Now, I know you and I can talk to Jesus one-on-one, but you kind of get the idea of what I'm saying here. This is is unique, really, very, very unique. And so I think you have to see the question that Jesus responds to him back with as sort of throwing out their little bait to see whether or not Pilate will respond to it. Well, the interview continues, and Pilate responds with two quick questions of his own in answer to what Jesus says. This is where it begins to get, I think, sort of obvious that Pilate suspicions that something's just not quite right in this whole deal. Let me try to show you why that's so. Um, he responds with two questions of his own, but neither of which really take the bait as far as Jesus offering him an opportunity He indicates now by these questions, you can tell he's purely concerned about the trial aspect of this. Purely concerned about, he first of all says, am I a Jew? And once again, this is constructed to expect the negative answer. So the way you might bring the force of that out would be to say that what Pilate said to him, I'm not a Jew, am I? And so, again, you can can just sense that hardcore pride that's there, but something else is going to come out in the next. He says, Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? When I read that, sometimes I smile because it's almost like uh, our parents at times caught us doing things we weren't supposed to do. What have you done? Did you ever get that question from your parents before? Well, I can remember that question on quite a few occasions. I remember in particular, it was one Sunday morning. We, this was before any real Christianity came, I'll tell you that. And us boys were doing something that we shouldn't have been doing. We had water balloons. And we were up there, and we chucked one out the window at the top, the high part of the house, Right when old man McDowell, he was about two or three houses up from us, he was coming down the street in his Lincoln Continental, had the windows open and was headed to Sunday Mass. I don't remember if it was my brother or I that chucked that water balloon, but it went right through that window. I mean, you couldn't have have done it better if you'd been trying. We weren't really trying to have it go through his window. I think we just were interested in having it hit his car or something like that. And it was just a prank, but he didn't think it was too funny. (laughs) He came to the door, and we said, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, we're in trouble now. And my father went to the door, and some exchange took place. We couldn't hear any of that, but it wasn't too much later than we heard this. (laughs) That was my dad coming up the last set of stairs to the third level where we were. And we are, we are in trouble now. Well, there was a little door that was at the top of the stairs. He pulled the door open. I was the first one there. What are you boys doing? Well, I don't mind telling one on myself. I said, I don't know. <laughs> right past me to my brother, my older brother. What are you boys doing? Well... We might have thrown a water balloon. Well, he looked at us both. This was the kind of guy my dad was. He looked at us both, and just this ever so slight of a smile, hardly one that you could detect, but if you were watching, kind of like looking to see, okay, are we going to get the strap or what? (laughs) You just, a little glimmer of a smile. Well, don't do it again. And he turned and walked off. I think he half thought it was funny. I'm not sure what old man McDowell said to him. Maybe he thought old man McDowell got what he had coming to him. I don't know. But I know where he, when he left out of there, it was like, whew. Because I'm telling you, when he decided that you had to have punishment, it was always the strap. That's what he called it. You're going to get the strap. hmm But he could apply the Board of Education to the seat of learning. It usually is three times is all it took. So this sounds a little bit like that. But you got to look at this in the context. That's really not quite the way it was meant. It wasn't like Pilate was looking at at Jesus as a a rowdy little kid or something and as a parent saying, what have you done? It's that he's saying to him, look, your own nation and the Jews delivered you unto me. The question really means this. What did you do to provoke them to do that? That's really what the question means. And see, it's at this point that we understand, and again, it really helps us to be able to consult the other narratives, that Pilate understands this doesn't add up. Because if you've really got a man who's a potential leader of the Jewish nation out from under the bondage of Rome, who, who, who is a potential king, who, who's in a position to gain the support and following of the people and cause the Roman government some real problems, if that's really true, why are, why are they betraying you to me? Why are they turning you over to me? That makes absolutely no sense at all. Well, And of course, when we look at the narrative and when we read in other places, I'll give you this one example. Matthew 27 and verse 18 says, Pilate knew that for envy they had delivered him. Pilate knows that this is all a sham. Pilate knows that it's not a true thing. It's not a fair thing. It's that they have trumped this stuff up. They have brought this man to Jesus essentially because they want to dispose of Jesus. They want the Roman government to be their agent in putting Jesus to death. They hide behind the fact that it's not lawful for us to put any man to death. Pilate tries to get rid of them. Go take this and deal with it according to your... You're the one... This is a religious squabble. This is about what this amounts to. And he doesn't want anything to do with it. Well, he wants even less to do with it as it goes along. And so he's suspicious about this thing. So Jesus responds to him again. Now, realize that every time Jesus responds and just doesn't remain silent. It's another opportunity for Pilate. Because see, when we get to chapter 19, we're going to find that Jesus doesn't respond. So every time Jesus continues dialoguing with Pilate, every time this interview continues is another moment of grace for Pilate. It's another opportunity for him to respond. So what does Jesus tell him? Well, let's look. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is essentially saying, You don't have anything to worry about for me because my kingdom is otherworldly. Do you see what he's saying? My kingdom is not of this world. If you're concerned, and it is, in a, in a strictly criminal trial concern before Pilate, the only real concern that Pilate has, he doesn't care if Jesus is a preacher, he doesn't care if Jesus is a religious individual, a prophet. He knows the Jews have all of those kinds of things in their, in their background and in their tradition. No, the only real thing that Pilate is concerned about is, is there a legitimate basis that this man is bucking the Roman government by calling himself and wanting to set himself up as a rival to Caesar? Jesus says, you don't have a thing to worry about because my kingdom is otherworldly. It's not political. It's good to have that reminder every so often. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom, Jesus said, were of this world, if it were truly political, he said, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. Yeah. Well, think about Pilate's situation for a minute. Is he plugged in at all? Does he care? Does he realize what Jesus is saying to him? Because now what Jesus has said on the one level, Pilate's off the hook. But on another level, it would be very intriguing to pursue, well, if you're not a political king, what kind of king are you? Which is, in a sense, what Pilate does. He's mildly intrigued because look at the next said, verse 37. This is Pilate's fourth question. Art thou a king then? And again, this is constructed to expect a positive answer, so it's almost like Pilate is saying to Jesus, so you are a king then? And Jesus clarifies and says this, Thou sayest that I am a king. Now, you've got to understand, Jesus is not saying to Pilate, Well, that's just what you, you say. No, he, he's acknowledging that what Pilate says is true. If we were to bring out the significance of the way this, uh, this manner of speaking goes in that day and in that time, it would be something like this. Thou sayest correctly that I am a king. You're right about that. I'm not going to stand here and tell you I'm not a king. I am a king. But to this end was I born, and for this cause came I unto the world, that I might or should bear witness unto the truth. Oh, now the subject of the truth is going to come up. What kind of truth? Not political truth, spiritual truth. Because he said, my kingdom is not of this world, it's otherworldly. I have been sent from God to bear witness concerning the truth of God. To this world. And do you know, if we go back in in the the account a little bit, we certainly find that that's true. Um, You have Jesus making the remark in John chapter 5 and verse 43, I am come in my Father's name. What did he come for in his Father's name? The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came into this world as a light bearer. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And in John chapter 12, Jesus makes another statement right along these same lines. John 12 and verse 46, he says this. I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. Yes, I'm a king, but my mission in this world, being sent from the Father, is to declare the truths about his kingdom, his claims upon men. I'm not interested in the political I'm interested in the spiritual. And you know, if you think about this, beloved, this just ties in with everything we know to be true about Jesus' ministry because what did he go around preaching? Repent for the kingdom of God has drawn near. He gave the Sermon on the Mount, and it was all about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He told Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Or the kingdom of God. Jesus' ministry was about the kingdom of God. He was sent to proclaim the truth of God to the souls of men, the claims of God upon men, the spiritual truths that men need to set them free in order that they might have the forgiveness of sins and have a personal relationship with God. Now, what's Pilate going to do with that? Because Jesus has just told him. Is Pilate interested in that? See, Every time it goes on, Jesus extends another little layer, another little opportunity. And now we're at the place, do you have any interest in the truth? Is that of any interest to you at all? You've already seen that I'm not a threat. You've already seen through these charges of the Jews. You know know that there's nothing to this. And by the way, we're going to see that very clearly in verse 38. It comes right out. When Jesus or Pilate goes back out to the Jews, this is the first time that he says it. He says it several times, but we get to this verse and he goes back out to the Jews after the interview is over and he says, I find no fault in him at all. But what about Jesus, what he had said to him about the truth? To this end was I born. Why did I come into the world? Why was I in? Why did I become incarnate? Why did I come into the world? That I should bear witness unto the truth. The truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Well, someone said that to you. What do you think you would think? Everyone who is of the truth heareth my voice. This is a litmus test. Am I interested in this? Or am I going to show by my disinterest that I'm not interested in the truth and that I'm not of God? What's he going to do with this? And that brings us to the culmination, the ending of the interview. Pilate saith unto him, what is truth? So sad. So sad. Because with all of these opportunities and with all of this chance to explore with Jesus the question about the truth, what it was that Jesus was making a claim to, what it is that is the kingdom of God and the claims of God on men, he comes up with a philosophical question, but it's more than philosophical because it's pretty obvious that it's tinged with cynicism. I want to tell you something. I, 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 in a sense, I feel sorry for Pilate in this sense. When you're a part of the political world, Isn't it pretty easy? Don't you think we have lots of people out there who are sort of jaded when it comes to the issue of the truth? I mean, when you live every day around so many liars, forgive me, but it's the truth. I'm not trying to politicize the message. I'm simply saying that when the currency that you deal with every day is liars who simply tell you what they want you to hear to put forward their case, which is exactly what the Jews have done. The Jews have come and they've put forward what they want Pilate to hear so that Pilate will do what they want him to do. Pretty easy under those circumstances, especially when you see it, to get kind of a cynical, jaded attitude towards the truth and blow the whole thing off and go, what is truth? It's as if Pilate has never met someone that he really thinks is capable of truthfulness. You know, I don't think that that's exclusively true, so I don't want you to, I mean, in the sense that I think you can find some honest politicians, but you may have to look. I'm not saying that in some of the issues that we've been presented with recently, there's not a strain of truth. I'm simply saying that we certainly see people who present things to the total exclusion of other things because they have a goal in mind where they want something to go, and they figure if they say it enough times, it's a little bit like Joseph's brothers, you know. If you say something enough times, well, we have another brother, but one is not. He's dead, and you've told that story so many times. You've told that lie so many times that it's as if that becomes your world. That becomes your truth. That's that's where you live, Folks, I want to take just a moment, I can't take too long, but I want to broaden this out a little bit and tell you, this is, this is right what I'm talking to you about right now. This thing that Pilate is grappling with, it's right where we are today. Because we're dealing in a postmodern culture. And I think that, that you all know the term modernism, because think back a hundred years ago, we were dealing with what was known as the fundamentalist modernist controversy. What was that controversy? Well, on the one hand, you had people who were contending for the truth not necessarily strains of interpretation, but the fundamentals. In other words, the things that every solid Bible-believing person, whether he was a Presbyterian, a Methodist, a Baptist, whatever, believed the Bible to teach. Things like the inspiration and the authority of Scripture, the virgin birth of Christ, the creation of man by the direct act of God, all these different things that, that that were not interpretations. Everyone agreed that those things were clear that the Bible taught. And then you had German rationalism, and you had all of that mess where the truth was essentially contradicted, that the Bible really wasn't the word of God. You couldn't believe miracles. Jesus didn't walk on the water and all this kind of stuff where it was just an out-and-out denial of the truth. But we've kind of lived through that day, and now we've kind of gotten to the day of postmodernism. What's postmodernism? Well, postmodernism is kind of the idea that truth is basically the product of the culture in which you live. Your truth is socially constructed. It's the truth that it's so and and so there's really no such thing as absolute truth. It's all relative. It just depends on your culture. It depends on how you've been brought up. What you see is truth you realize that what that accomplishes is, then you don't have to be responsible for every, anything. Everybody's right. He's no more l- wrong than I am. I'm no more right than he is. Truth is how I see it. And I want to give you a couple of examples for this. Um, you know, in our, in our society, we have all sorts of stars, movie stars, music stars, all this kind of thing, and the news constantly refers to, refers to them as the celebs. I'm sure you've seen that all the time. I get sick of it. But... One person who is writing an article on this uses Madonna for an example. Here's what they say. She personifies our age, a self-created persona undergoing perpetual change. In her world, there are no fixed points. There are no boundaries. Everything is fluid. There are no structures of meaning that transcend personal experience. If there is such a thing as truth, nobody has exclusive claim to it. If it exists at all... And that's very doubtful. It is a chameleon, and it takes different shapes, different colors, different hues, depending on the context. You see it in lifestyles. So, for example, today, now the question arises about sexual preference. It isn't any longer, am I a male or female? The Bible says male and female created he them. To me, it's, that's pretty simple, straightforward reading, isn't it? But now we have this whole expression sexual preference because you just sort of can choose. All of a sudden sexuality, human sexuality is totally removed from the arena of ethics and morals and it's just purely a matter of choice. What do you want to be? This postmodernism, see, it's just a matter of taste. It's just a matter of your particular. And so what we're losing, folks, we're losing the stars. We're losing the fixed points that don't change. Let me illustrate what I mean when I say we're losing the stars. This, there's a man who was a preacher, had gone to England to lecture on postmodernism. And when he was returning from London, he happened to sit down on the flight next to a young man. The young man was 23 years old. He was dressed kind of crisply and smartly because he was a merchant navy navigator. Well, the preacher who was sitting next to him was kind of interested in the conversation because it turned out that his uh, late brother-in-law had also been a merchant Navy navigator. And so he, he thought, well, I, you know, I, I'm interested in talking to this young man. There's certainly uh, things that we can talk about. And so he engaged him in conversation, and he said, well, he said, I take it on your, you know, he, he was on a, a cruise ship. He said, I take it on your cruise ship that you have all the latest computer gadgetry, at GPS, and all that kind of thing, and... The young man said to him, he said, yes, of course. But the thing that the young man said next absolutely startled the preacher. He said, the young man said, I don't trust them. Here's a 23-year-old young man. He's a child of our time. And yet he says, no, I still go out every night and look for the stars just to confirm where I am. I want to ask you a question. If you left Liverpool or... England, somewhere, and it's overcast, so you can't see the stars, and you just start off in the direction that appears to be west, you don't have GPS, you don't have the computer gadgetry, you don't have any real way of dead reckoning, you don't know where you are, what's the chances you're going to hit New York? I mean, once you get out there away from the shore where you can't sense, okay, that was behind me. I can tell you this because I grew up along the coast. Once you get out there and it's nothing but water all the way around, it's like all of a sudden, uh, where am I and which way is back? You know what I'm saying? You have no fixed point of reference. But if you have the stars, which is how, of course, they navigated in the past. They had the sextant and all that and used the stars. You have fixed points. Beloved, that's the only way for you and me to order our lives. We have to know the truth. The fixed points, the stars that you can base your life on, the truths of God's word. Don't you see what Satan has done? That in undermining the whole, this whole question that Pilate asks, what, what is truth? No one really can have the truth. He's jaded, he's cynical. But you know you can know the truth. And when you know the truth, it sets you free. And when you have the truth and you're confident of the truth, you've got a moral guide and a compass for your life and it doesn't change and it's true because it comes from God it's fixed truth moral truth absolute truth that doesn't change that's the conversation that Jesus offered Pilate Pilate blew it off I feel sad in some ways for Pilate not only did he blow one of the most unique opportunities that anyone has ever had in a personal interview with Jesus but the poor guy, not only an arrogant, proud Roman, but had been around what you and I today would call Washington culture so long that he was just cynical about the whole question of the truth. What is truth? Well, this is why I say his question was ultimately his answer because at this point, there's no further conversation. He abruptly ends the interview Look at John 18, 38, Pilate saith unto him, what is truth? And when he had said this, it's over. All of those opportunities that Jesus gave him, his question is his answer, not interested. Just interested in what I need to know to deal with these Jews and to deal with this charge. Just interested in this purely on a legal and criminal basis. And so he goes out to the Jews and says, you're all wet. There's nothing here. This man's innocent. I find no fault in him at all. Of course, you know it didn't stop there because the Jews were insistent, but that's next week. We'll talk about that, God willing, next week. He's indifferent. That's why I say, beloved, it's so important for you and me that we don't end any encounter that we have with Jesus where this man did. If offered the opportunity to meet with Jesus and to hear his voice speaking, we need to listen. You know, there are two songs that go by the name, What Will You Do With Jesus? I'm going to tell you a little bit about one, and then we're going to sing the other, because the other is written by Ron Hamilton. We have it in our book, so we don't have the first one. The one that was written years ago was written in 1891, and it was also entitled, What Will You Do With Jesus? So it depends on whether or not you go by the popular title. Sometimes you go; the custom is often to go by the title that's in the first line of the song. If you go by the title and the first name of the song, the title of this song is Jesus is Standing in Pilate's Hall. Do you remember the old song? It was written in 1891. It was written by A.B. Simpson, who was the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And there's a story behind it, at least in the sense of where he got the idea for the song, because Matthew 27, this is Matthew's account of Jesus' interview with Pilate, when Pilate's frustrated and he goes back out to the Jews and he says, I find no fault in him at all, Matthew 27, 22 records this, that they say crucify him and Pilate says, what shall I do then with Jesus? They called for Barabbas. And so Pilate throws up his hands, what shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? Well, A.B. Simpson came along and turned it into a question to make it personal, which is what I've tried to do with this today. What will you do with Jesus? Here's a little taste of the song. Jesus is standing in Pilate's hall, friendless, forsaken, betrayed by all. Hearken what meaneth the sudden call. What will you do with Jesus? Jesus is standing on trial still. You can be false to him if you will. You can be faithful through good or ill. What will you do with Jesus? Jesus. Will you evade him as Pilate tried, or will you choose him in whateer betide? Vainly you struggle for him from him to hide. What will you do with Jesus? And the refrain, What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, What will he do with me? Beloved, unless something radical happened that we simply aren't told. That day has come and gone for Pilate. He already knows what God's going to do with him. And he will live with an eternity of regret. For having had one of the most unique opportunities in the presence of Christ to know the truth, but who turned away with it with cynicism and indifference, What will you do with Jesus?